please turn with me tonight to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. I'm going to read a few scriptures, but this is going to be a bit of a history lesson. I prefer to stick to scripture like I did last Wednesday night, and I will next Wednesday night. But here in this message this week, in part seven of this series concerning Israel, I just want to primarily give you a bit of background, a bit of church history. I take it for granted from experience that certainly in this church, most of you will not read church history or research into it. You either don't have time or interest or something else. So what I do, I've got a great interest in these things and I've had lots of time doing this. I just like to convey some of this. You don't need to know church history, but it can help you to understand why things are happening. Because you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. Things repeat a time and time and time again. I have learned the benefit of knowing church history. But we're going to the scriptures here tonight. And my message tonight, the genesis of replacement theology, or I could say the roots. What are the roots like we dealt with last week, the roots of the tree. What's the roots of the whole people of God? We're going to look at the roots of this teaching, which I believe is a wrong teaching, replacement theology. And last week, we already dealt with in Romans 11, the basic teaching of this. That should be sufficient. But we're just going a bit further. And then next week, I'm going to take their arguments one by one. They're scriptures that they think are unanswerable, and we're going to go through them. I'm going to give you simple biblical responses to them, but I also want you to understand their arguments and where they're coming from. And so this message, the genesis of replacement theology, reading from Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent, there's Paul speaking, writing, and from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church, and when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept nothing back, nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. 
For I have not shunned to declare unto all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. And to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To feed the church of God. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. And I want you to note the next two verses. It's very important for what we're going to preach here. For I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all that the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the word of God tonight. And Father, will you keep us from every perverse word of man. Father, every twisted teaching, every false conception, every wrong interpretation, every mishandling of scriptures, of teachings, of doctrine. Lord God, we ask, O oh God, that, that you'd fill us with the spirit of truth, and that the Holy Spirit of truth might guide us and keep us sovereignly. Lord God, even from the things that we may not see or discern with our natural minds, nor God, even when we are darkened and understanding, will you keep us in the way of truth? Will you hedge us in? And when we go to go to the left or right, may we hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Nor God, thank you for the spirit of truth. Thank you, God, for this book. Nor God, that manifests the revelation of boundaries, oh God, of clear teaching. And Lord God, help me tonight to open it up and apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Part 7, the genesis of replacement theology. Where did it come from? Where did it begin? How did it arise? How has it spread worldwide across the church? And why is it, even in posting videos online, we can encounter people who actually believe this? Well, we're going to take a brief look and go right back to its roots, its beginning historically. Here where I have read concerning Paul with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. Remember in January time, I actually went there to Miletus, sat on the steps, was in that community. It was remarkable to be there where Paul actually called the Ephesian elders to meet him. We had actually been in Ephesus before that. We drove from Ephesus 
and we drove all the way down the road to Miletus and I'd done a couple of little videos there just talking about this actual meeting. Well, I want you to notice here in verse 30 what Paul says. He says, also of your own selves shall men arise. He is talking to elders, to leaders, to qualified men in the church at Ephesus. And what does Paul say to them? They're all gathered, not just one leader, not one elder, not two elders. There's a whole group of elders that unitedly work together in one church in the city of Ephesus. And so he's got them gathered here, and he gives them a very real warning. First of all, about wilts coming from the outside. What are wilts? They are false teachers. They are men. They're not literal wilts. They are men. But this is symbolic. A man who comes from outside the church, a teacher gifted in ministry with knowledge, actually teaching the Word of God with some realm of authority, is called a wolf. And Paul says, there are going to come wolves against your church. When I go, when I leave, in the days ahead, wolves are going to try to enter into your church. So he's warning elders, protect the, the sheep, protect the flock that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But this second warning, he says, but also as well as wolves coming from the outside, right from your own midst, from inside the church at Ephesus, from amongst elders that I appointed, elders that I trained, men who I know, looking at their character, they seem to have character. Paul says, as soon as I leave, from amongst yourselves, men are going to begin to arise. They won't do it until I'm out of the way. They won't do it until I say, farewell for the very last time, and I won't see your faces again. As soon as I sail away from Miletus, Certain men will arise. They looked okay until this point, but certain men, not all of you, he's warning the other elders because you're going to have to deal with this and protect the flock. Men called elders appointed by Paul are suddenly, when they have freedom, going to begin to arise. And what, note what he says here, speaking perverse things. So these elders are inside the church. They're in the body of Christ, and they're going to begin to arise once protection is removed. What are they going to do in this horizon? How are they going to arise? Speaking perverse things. And this is what I want you to note very carefully tonight. Perverse things is one word. They're going to arise. They're going to begin to manifest they're going to begin to do this. They weren't doing it before. And they're going to begin speaking perverse things. It's one Greek word, and this is what it means. It means to distort something, to misinterpret it, or to corrupt it. The Greek word used here means to turn around or to turn away in a different direction. It means to twist something back to front, or to reverse it, so it's pointing in the exact opposite direction. That's what this word perverse means. And Paul is warning, some of you elders that seem okay would never say these things now. You would say the same as me. Very shortly when I'm gone, you're going to arise and begin speaking things that are actually the opposite of what you now speak, the opposite of what I teach in the Bible. 
You're going to take scriptures and turn them back to front. You're going to begin twisting doctrines. You're going to turn it back to front to say something exactly opposite to what I've taught you. That's what elders at Ephesus are suddenly going to start doing. The actual word here, the Greek word, is something like diastrephe. The word, the word in a dia, the first half of a dia, means to separate or dislocate or to confuse. So you can say, see here, these men are going to rise speaking perverse things. They're going to separate. With their words, they're going to separate you, dislocate you. It's talking about taking a member of the body. Imagine your leg being turned back to front or your foot turned back to front or your arm turned back to front, out of joint, dislocated. That's what it means. But he's talking about people in the church. These elders appointed by Paul will actually begin to arise. They'll begin to perverse the word of God, twist it, change it, say the opposite thing, but they're using the same scriptures, using the same truths, but they switch it and turn it back to front. And you know what? They're going to bring confusion. Then Paul says, by this means, by changing the teaching and making it say something it ought not to say, or to say the opposite, he says, by this means, they're going to draw away disciples after themselves. So they create a teaching different than Paul, different than the other elders. They're in a position. They're in a church. They're, they've got a good reputation but they're going to begin to change things slowly. And with that teaching, with that teaching that's back to front, upside down, twisted around, you know what they're going to do? They're going to begin drawing away disciples after themselves. They're going to look that inside the church at Ephesus. You see, this isn't a new thing. This was happening 2,000 years ago. This has gone on for 2,000 years around real churches, and it's still happening today. It's no surprise, no shock that in the redeemed church of God, this sort of thing happens. And so we see that these men will create teachings they're going to pervert the scriptures, apostolic doctrine. They're going to turn it on its head to say something that was never meant to say. And then they're going to try to gather real disciples. What are, what are disciples? Taught ones. So in the church at Ephesus, they're going to begin to create disciples. They're going to follow our special little teaching, our revelation, our special understanding of the truth. Be very careful of these things. Be very, very careful of men arising who have special insight, profound knowledge, who begin to change things, who have a good reputation, but they'll move you away. Just think inside the church at Ephesus. These men with their new, unusual teachings are going to begin to draw disciples. In other words, followers. They're going to follow these men. These men are going to say, follow me with my special teaching. They don't care about the unity of the body or the entire church. All they care about is, you've got to believe my special little private interpretation of truth, my special understanding. I want you to follow me, become a disciple of me. I want you to sit at my feet and learn of me. How dangerous that is. You see, I actually believe that replacement theology is a perverted teaching. I don't mean that explicitly as being evil or perverted like we think, 
But in the biblical sense, it takes scriptures, which I believe are very clear, taught by Paul, and it switches them back to front. It begins to make them say things that they were never meant to say. Remember what I said last week, replacement theology. It's an entire doctrine teaching, and I'm going to show you where it began and how it began and how it became an entire teaching in the church. Those who hold replacement theology will say the church has replaced Israel, that we are the new Israel. We are called Israel. Although the Bible never calls the church our Christians Israel, they called the church and Christians Israel. They say that we're spiritual Israel, the Israel of God. And in fact, they teach as a foundation of this, Christ is Israel. Or you could call Christ Israel. Jesus was on the cross, the new Israel. And so in him, we become Israel as well. They actually go on to teach, generally speaking, because they have different areas. Some of them are very extreme. Some of them are very mild. Some of them teach certain things and others don't. Most of them deny that they're replacement theology, even though they are. Another part of this teaching is that Israel is no longer God's people. You cannot call them God's people. Even though here in Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about Gentile and Jews. Jew is still a national Jew. He's preaching to Jews the gospel, repent. Why? They're not saved, but he still calls them Jew. That name Jew hasn't been moved over into the church. Paul still says a Jew is a Jew, a Gentile is a Gentile. It's all through the Bible. When you begin thinking like this, it's very obvious, it's explicit, it is clear. But they begin to say that Israel is no longer chosen. It is no longer special to God. It is no longer the apple of his eye. It no longer has a special prophetic purpose or role in the future yet to happen. They say all the promises that were for Israel now have gone to the church. All the prophecies that were about Israel have now been spiritualized and are now applied to the church. I actually believe this is what Paul is speaking about. His men are going to rise in the church and are going to begin turning the scripture back to front to mean something it was never meant to say. Now, we're going to go further into this next week and deal with it. But I want to take you right back You see, these men say salvation never was national, biological, not at all. They say it's not in the DNA, so it can't be Israel as a nation. It's always been by faith. They spiritualize the covenant and all the promises and the prophecies and what has been created around this teaching. It began here changing this about Israel, but building in around this, rose up an entire teaching of spiritualizing the Old Testament, of taking things that are physical, literal stories, and you spiritualize them. Stories, promises, prophecies, and you spiritualize so that they aren't literally fulfilled anymore. Most of this is embodied in Reformed churches. It's called the teaching of amillennialism, It's a denial that these prophecies are still future. They only believe that Jesus coming back is the only prophecy yet to be fulfilled. You see, the rest of it 
is all spiritual. It's all happened already. We're in the millennium already. Satan is bound already. Aren't you glad that you don't need to worry about the devil? They say the devil is already in the pit. He's bound. He's on a chain. And we're in the millennium. I wish we were. I wish we were. I really do. And so a lot of teachings come in around this. This is why John Calvin, he taught on almost every single book of the Bible, apart from the book of Revelation. There's an entire commentary by him on every New Testament book, but not Revelation. Other men in these circles, great teachers, great thinkers, and yet they said, "We, we... don't understand the book of Revelation. We can't teach Revelation. They wouldn't touch Revelation. No wonder, because your belief system so confuses it, you can't teach it. But here tonight, let me get, take you on a little history journey. I'm going to give you about five points here. Number one, apostolic teaching on Israel and the Gentiles. When you go to the New Testament, you have clear teaching by the apostles. The 12 apostles, ministries raised up in the first church, and of Paul the apostle, who gives us most of the letters in the New Testament. You, You have the book of Acts, and you see this whole issue over Israel and the Gentiles. When you go to the book of Acts chapter 15, you have an entire church council. You have James is there, Peter is there, Barnabas is there, Paul is there. In fact, the 12 apostles of the Lamb are there. Almost the entire church is there. All the elders at Jerusalem are there. And they're all gathered. Why do they gather? To discuss the issue of the controversy over Israel and the Gentiles. But listen very carefully. The controversy isn't about Israel. The controversy is about the Gentiles. All through the book of Acts, for most of the New Testament, what is the controversy? The Jewish converts, which were almost the entire church. The first churches were Jewish. The first apostles were Jewish. The first elders were Jewish. The first evangelists were Jewish. The first missionaries were Jewish. And as it spread out, It began to slowly change. They reached Cornelius' house. Then they reached Ephesus. Then they reached the city of Rome. And now a problem arises. Do you know what the controversy is? The Jews are now having to come to terms to Gentile branches being grafted in. The problem isn't where Israel fits into it. The problem is where the Gentiles actually fit into the real church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's very obvious that Jews are involved in this. God has raised up a Jewish church. He is grafting in the the branches, the Gentile branches. And so when you come to the New Testament, you have apostolic teaching on Israel And the Gentiles, they begin to teach. When you go to Acts 15, you get James standing up, Peter standing up, Paul standing up, and begin talking about how do the Gentiles come into the household of God? How are the Gentiles, uh, Ephesian believers, Antiochian believers? Remember I discussed that revival at Antioch, that great city where so many Gentiles got born again. You know what they're saying? They're trying to explain to these converted Jews How do the Gentiles, 
How do people from Limerick get into the kingdom of God and become Christians? How do you get into the Abrahamic covenant? How is it that you've got right to promises that were made to Abraham and his seed? They were trying to go, no, surely we should shut these Gentiles out. Peter, James, Paul are saying, no, the doors are open. We are all the people of God. Wasn't this tremendous what God began to do? Paul begins teaching in Ephesus that the middle wall of partition has been broken down. Jew and Gentile is now new, one new man. He begins teaching on the mystery opened up by God that there's only one body. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. One body through the blood of Jesus in Christ by grace through faith. And there's a raising up. This is the tree of faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have teaching after teaching by Paul, expounding how there's no longer, in Galatians he says it, there's no longer male nor female. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. Now he uses that term afterwards, so he's not saying there's no Jew or Gentile. And of course we know there's still male and female. There's nothing strange here. He's saying, there's no male and female in this. What does he mean by that? Of course there's differences. Of course there's distinction. He's saying, as far as salvation, as far as grace goes, doesn't matter where you're a man or a woman, you're saved the same, it makes no difference. He's saying, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're saved the same way. Doesn't matter whether you're Irish or English or German or American or Chinese, we are all one body. It doesn't make any difference culturally. So the Apostle Paul began to teach this one body, that we are one people. When we believe in Christ, we are joined together. We are one household of faith. We all partake of the covenants of grace. It is dynamic. And then Paul in Romans 9 to 11, like we dealt with last Wednesday night, we see Paul when he writes to Rome, the church in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. You see, God was raising up Gentiles. He was raising up people out of that great capital city who were born again. There was a great mega church being raised up across many homes in the city of Rome. Well, you know what he began to teach? He knew in his letter he had to talk about the Jews. And so from Romans chapter 9 to 11, he begins talking about the place of Israel and the Jew in God's sovereign purpose. And so you see, in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, in one generation, maybe two generations, the whole issue goes from the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem trying to understand how the Gentiles come in and be a part of them to the end of the century, the end of the first century, where the Christians begin to wrestle with the fact, does that mean God's finished with the Jew? Have we replaced the Jew? You see, something happened here. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, why do you think he's saying, has God cast off his ancient people? Is God finished with Israel or the Jews? Why do you think he's preaching that if it wasn't a live issue in Rome? He begins to preach and say, God has not finished with Israel. Why? Because it's an answer that needs dealt with. Do you see within one short generation, within the ministry of Paul, one minute he's trying to speak to the Jews 
in Jerusalem and saying, we ought to let the Gentiles in. Now he's speaking to the Roman Gentiles who are Christians and saying, don't reject Israel. Don't reject the Jews. God hasn't forget, given up on them. So Paul is caught in this. And I feel a bit like this when I deal with this issue of Israel. I feel in the same spot because I'm dealing with two errors and I always have. You know, all through the years, I've always taught against the Jewish roots teaching. All through the years, I've heard from people who are pro-Israel say, you need to go back to your Jewish roots because they think Romans 11, the roots are Israel. And so they say the church always needs to go back to its Jewish roots. I've always said, no, Jesus is the roots. It's not the church going back to the Jewish roots. Do you know what it's going to be in our day? It's going to be Israel going back to its Jesus roots. I have preached and taught and warned against wearing the Jewish skull cap or, pressure, or special prayer shawls or going around using the name Yeshua because that's more authentic and it sounds more spiritual or denying evangelizing Jews. So I'm against all the hyper idolatry of Israel. I'm against it. I preach against it. But also those who say Israel's finished with, there's no prophecies for them. I'm against both, but I'm just following Paul here. So that's my first point, apostolic teaching on Israel and the Gentiles. Number two, and I want you to hear this so very carefully, small deviations by good men after the apostles. I'm talking about good men, godly men, real men, but they make small deviations away from Paul's teaching. Look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. Look how Paul talks about Israel. Suddenly they begin changing the teaching. You see, over into the second century, we have the first century in the Bible. The second century, we need to go to church history for. But in that second century, 100 and whatever through to 200 AD, <clears throat> We, we begin to see that replacement theology begins to take shape. Little comments, sentences, phrases, comments. Not entire teachings, just little phrases. That's why when you go back to the teachers in that second century, there's no systematic teaching. There's just a phrase or a comment. And so people go back to these and say, look at this, over into the third century, beginning from the year 200 through to 300, in that century, these little comments begin to take on a systemized form of doctrine and of teaching and of letters and of books. So there's a progression in this. Do you realize replacement theology starts in the second century within 50 years of the book of Revelation being written. That's how quickly it begins to arise. <clears throat> Let me mention just some of these people. The first one, his name is Justin Martyr. It's called Justin Martyr because later he gets martyred. He dies for the faith. He so loves his master, he lays down his life as a martyr. He's a good man, but he made small deviations, small comments that were unbiblical that later become a whole teaching. He wrote a book called The Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. 
It was a discussion from him in Rome. He lived in the city of Rome. But he carried on a discussion with a Jew who had actually fled from Judea in the year 135 and who had come to Rome and he has this dialogue with him or a discussion about Jews and Gentiles and the kingdom of God. And he publishes it in the year about 160 AD. Well, in this book, he begins to talk. Listen to what he says in it about Jesus being Israel. That's the very first time it gets mentioned. So this is very old. But do you know what? It's having a resurgence because of internet. It's beginning to spread this idea. But it goes right back to just a martyr. No apostle says it. No, the New Testament doesn't say it. It is just a martyr first creates this idea. Do you see the small deviation? One little teaching, not realizing where it's going to go. This is a good man, a godly man, a martyr, who begins teaching that Jesus is Israel. He then goes on to say that the church and Christians, listen to what he says, he calls them a new Israel, the true Israel. He speaks about the church replacing biblical Israel. Christians are the true people of God. Quote, we who have been quarried out from the bowels of Christ are the true Israelite race. He was an opponent rather than evangelist. He was actually challenging the Jews in this letter. He wrote against the Jews. He wasn't simply saying, God loves you. Christ died for you. You know what he was saying? We replaced you. Now we're the people of God. We're being chosen. He was trying to win an argument rather than evangelize them by the blood of Jesus. He, he, he began to speak about a crucified Christ and how that God gave law to them for this reason. He said, do you know why God gave the Ten Commandments, the law, Moses, to the Jews? Because he didn't give it to Abraham, and he hasn't given it to the church. Why do you think God gave the law to them? He says, because they're such a terrible race, so hard-hearted, so blind, more than any other nation on the earth, that God gave them Moses. That's why they were given the law, the commandments. And so he began to teach that we, the church, are the true spiritual Israel. He said that Israel has forfeited the scriptures and the prophets, which are now the property of the church. He goes on to say that to our persecutors we say, and he said, the Jew persecutors. Remember the Jews? Wasn't it the Jews who persecuted the early church? Didn't they crucify Christ? Didn't they martyr Stephen? Didn't they throw Peter in prison? Didn't all of this persecution arise? Well, still in Justin Martyr's day, about 150, 160 AD, he's saying, you Jews still persecute us. You still argue. You still deny us. Well, this is what he says. To you persecutors, you are our brothers, and we pray for you that you might experience the mercy of God. Wasn't that beautiful? So he got some things wrong, but he desired their salvation. He desired them to have the mercy of God, but he was already believing little changes. We have replaced you. You're no longer the people of God. You've lost the covenants. We have taken your place. But he still desired their salvation. Do you know this Justin Martyr? 
I just read this afternoon his teaching on Romans 11. It was almost exactly like what I told you last week. He called Jews, Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles. He was very clear, very clear. You'd almost think it was me preaching last week. And this is the man who makes the first mention of replacement theology. He's a man who's got a lot of truth, a lot of clarity, a lot of love for Christ, a lot of love for souls and for Jews but he's starting to teach little statements that are going to become entire doctrines and affect the church in later generation. There's another man in that century called Irenaeus. Writing about the year 180 AD, he said, they who boast themselves as being the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, he's speaking about the Jews, are disinherited from the grace of God. Irenaeus was a local church bishop in Gaul, that is France, and he wrote a book called Against Heresies. He wrote against Marcion, who who denied the word of God, who tore it apart. He was generally a mild man, a considerate man, but he also began teaching this. We have replaced Israel and called us Israel. Do you know in our whole New Testament, not once is the church called Israel. We're not given the name Jew. But these men begin introducing this. Another man that century called Tertullian. I'm telling you about the best men in the church of the second century that we have a record of. Tertullian was another godly man in North Africa. Listen to what he wrote in one of his letters. He wrote about Rebecca's two twins in her womb that were wrestling He said, there's a picture of Jews and Gentiles. Esau represents the Jews. Jacob, who's actually a Jew, represents all the Christians. And then he went on further. He said, why did God give circumcision to the Jews or to Israel? Why to them alone? This is what he said. To mark them out in the last days so that we know who to exclude from the new Jerusalem. So circumcision is a mark that you go, by that it's a sign you're to be rejected. It is a mark of judgment. Of course you and I know it wasn't. Paul was circumcised, Barnabas was circumcised, Peter was circumcised. It was the mark of the covenant between God and his people. These are all good men, but they're just adding little things. They're changing, they're turning back to front. There was another man in the city of Rome called Hippolytus. He wrote his work, Expository Treatise Against the Jews. And it wasn't the last book written against the Jews by a Christian. He did not see a future recovery of Israel. He said their fall, their rejection is perpetual. It'll be forever. It's going to go on and on and on. So that's the second century. You've got good men making little changes, little statements, little teachings. These are small deviations by good men after the apostles are gone. Do you know what some of the Jesuits, and listen to me, let me give you a warning. And it's very important. Do you know the Jesuits, the Catholic Jesuits, that were trying to capture the church in England, the Anglican church. Great men, good men, actually exposed their plans. Listen to what it was. 
This was the Jesuit plan for England to recapture the Anglican church and Anglican ministers in the 19th century. To get them to return to Christian antiquity, the second century, third century, the writings of the early Christians. This was designed to occupy the clergy, the Anglican ministers, in long, laborious, and abstruse investigation and to alienate them from their Bibles. Do you know what the Jesuit plan was? To get you involved in all the church fathers. There's hundreds of volumes. There, there's, you, you'll spend years studying them. So the object was to get you going back to the second century and the third century and the fourth century to find pure Christianity. To begin thinking, they're close to the apostles. They must have a pure Christianity. Let's go back to the second century. That is a dangerous thing because you can see these men are already deviating from Paul. Didn't Paul warn that the Ephesian elders, some of you are going to pervert the word of God. Some of you are going to arise and begin teaching. So why would we think that the Christians of the second century, third century, or fourth century are more pure? If you ever hear anyone on YouTube or on teaching say, well, the church was pure then, you need to say, balderdash, that's a load of rubbish. Go back to your Bible. What did Jude say? He gave warnings about those arising before the year 100. What did Peter say? He gave warnings about those arising before the year 100. What did Paul say? He gave warnings to the church that men would arise within the church and begin twisting the teachings that he had given. Do you understand this? That's my second point. Small deviations by good men after the apostles. Number three, taught by heretics. Replacement theology wasn't only taught by good men, godly men, in the second century, making small deviation. It was also taught by heretics. Let me just briefly give you a couple of them. One of them is called Origin of Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt. He overseen a school of theology. I believe from my research, he was one of the most brilliant men of his century. He was an intelligent man. I believe he was highly gifted. I believe he had an extraordinary mind. But that can be very, very dangerous, I want to tell you. He lived at the end of the second century over into the third century. He was a writer. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. He raised up theological schools. He, he became one of the great early church writers and leaders. He, he began to do many things that have affected the church down to today. But do you know what? He was a heretic. He was a false teacher. He never made heaven. Listen to some of the things he taught. See if you recognize them. And then you know where these teachings go back to. He taught the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she was a virgin until the day she died. She didn't have any other children. He taught it. That's where it came from. He used to study and read the Gnostic writings. He did not accept the Bible as literal history. The stories in the Bible, he spiritualized them. He said it isn't real history. Genesis isn't real history. He said it's not for the common folk like you and I. He talked about soul sleep, that when you die, you sleep. You don't go to Jesus. He taught baptismal regeneration, that the water saves you and washes you from your sin. He taught universal salvation, that eventually everyone is going to be saved. He denied the divinity of Christ. He taught purgatory 
for cleansing of sin rather than the blood. He taught transubstantiation where the, the bread and the wine turn into the literal body. Do, do you realize where Catholicism came from in part? Well, it didn't come from him. It came from the Gnostics and he read the Gnostics and he brought all their teaching into the church. He taught the transmigration of the soul after death. In other words, reincarnation. He denied the temptations of Christ. He said they weren't real. They didn't actually happen. They're all in the mind. He denied that Genesis 1 to 3 were to be taken literally. Infants um, that were not baptized in water, little babies, went straight to hell when they died. You grew into salvation. You don't get born again. It's progressive. He denied physical resurrection of the body. He said the scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. This is one of the men who taught and who affected the church concerning replacement theology. Writing about Galatians chapter 4, he, he, he talked about Sarah and Hagar symbolizing the two covenants, which they do. And he says the Christians are prefigured by Isaac, the son of Sarah, the free wife, and the Jews are symbolized by Ishmael. To take all the Jews and say, they're of Ishmael. It's such a twisting of scripture. The son of Hagar, the slave. He talked about the church being heavenly Israel. So this man had a profound effect in the third century. He was a brilliant man. He affected all the great scholars that arose out of Egypt. You know all the new versions of the Bible. Why do we have two different Greek documents for the New Testament? Don't worry about there being different versions of the Bible. There's two different Greek documents. Mine's built on one. All the new versions are built on the other. You know where it comes from? Alexandria and this man. He put his sticky fingers all over it. I could say an awful lot about this. But you know what? I don't want to get off track here. He spiritualized heaven. See what he's doing? He spiritualized Israel. All the prophecies in the Old Testament, they're not literally going to be fulfilled concerning Jesus or the signs of the times. They're all spiritually given to the church. You can't think the Old Testament's history. It's spiritual. This man done great damage. There was another heretic who taught this. His name was Marcion. He died about the year 160. You know what he taught? He, he taught we need to get rid of Judaism. We need to get all the Jewish influence out of the church. So he rejected the Old Testament. He said the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. He only accepted 10 letters of Paul. He said we need to purge the New Testament of Jewishness, any Jewish thought, any Jewish tradition, any Jewish stories, anything Jewish, we need to cast it out. He hated Jewishness and he had a great following in the second century and in the third century. People went everywhere saying we're new covenant believers, we're under grace, we're in Christ, we follow Paul, we don't follow the Jewish church, we don't follow the Old Testament, we don't need the Old Testament, we've got a shorter, simpler Bible, we are Israel. Number four, taught by the Catholic Church, taking you through replacement theology here, taught by the Catholic Church. There were men like Cyprian who died in the year 258. He called himself a Catholic. Different men started to call themselves Catholic. 
by that term, they wanted everyone to be a Catholic. This was the beginning of the Catholic Church. But it was men who said, we want to unify. We only want one united church, and we want to call ourselves Catholic or international. He wrote a book called The Three Books of Testimonies Against the Jews. In there, he wrote about the Jews are replaced by Christians. And listen very carefully. He said lots of things, but I can't tell you all that I could tell you tonight. I just want you to get a feel for this. In those writings, he said, all the Jews in my area, my region, under my influence, they should be forced out of the region by sword point. All the Jews, either they get converted and come to Christ, or we should threaten them at the edge of the sword and put them out of the whole region. This is one of the great men who begin to start saying, we ought to be called Catholics, who actually promoted this teaching, use force against those who do not convert to become Christians. Lots of these leaders begin to arise and call themselves Catholics. And listen, let me take you to Nicaea. In 325, Emperor Constantine, who was the leader of the entire Roman Empire, who was a false convert who claimed to be a Christian. Lots of people say he became a Christian and stopped the persecution in the year 317. That's only partially correct. I'm going to tell you what is actually correct. In 325, he still worshipped the sun god. He still put idolatrous symbols on his coins. He had a false conversion. He had all the gods that he worshipped. And by the time he died, he had a water baptism by a man who denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ or that Jesus was God. But listen, 325, he called for a church council. He had united the entire empire, defeated his enemies. Now he wanted to unite the church. It was all divided. Different groups of Christians. He wanted one church, one Catholic church that would unite his empire. One religion. He chose Catholicism as his religion. And so he planned this council. They would come together for an entire month. He sent out letters all across his empires to 1,800 bishops. 1,800 bishops. And I'm emphasizing that for a reason. 1,000 in the east. 800 in the West. He sent them a letter. Come together. Let's unite. Only about 300 came together. Max. Although church history says 318. Out of 1,800 bishops, only 300 responded. And during that, they were forced to sign the Nicene Creed. I do not agree with the Nicene Creed. I agree with all of its statements. I could say, yeah, 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 I believe in all the Nicene Creed. But I'm against the Nicene Creed because of who created it, because of these bishops, because they were compromised. And you know, the year after it, you know what Constantine done? If you don't become a part of the Catholic Church, we'll take your property, your books, your house, we'll burn down your church buildings, and we'll send you to a foreign country outside the empire. He began to persecute born-again Christians. The man that's trying to unify and create a united political Catholic church 
is now saying, I'll persecute you. I'll use the sword. I'll use the force. I'll throw you in prison if you don't become a Catholic Christian. Do you know what this same Nicaea council, do you know what he also done? He set a different date for Passover, not Easter, for Passover, Pascha. They called it Pascha at Nicaea because the Jews until now celebrated Passover on the 20th day of Nisan, the first month in the Jewish calendar. And this is important for you. You've got to hear this. This is, this is very fascinating. And so at Nicaea, here's Constantine, all these bishops, the first united Catholic church in the year 325. What do they do? They say, we do not want to follow the Jewish date for Passover. We want to have a Christian date, and it's always got to be on a Sunday. Whereas they look at the moon, like it's taught in the Old Testament by Moses, by God, to say it's going to be the 20th day of Nisan. So the entire Catholic Church changed the date, and they rejected the 20th of Nisan. And the entire Catholic Church across Europe began to practice, and, and across the East as well, on a different date, a date chosen by the bishops or the Catholic Church. Here's the interesting thing. When the first Catholic missionary reached England about the year 600, been a church there for 500 years in England, in Britain, 500 years before the first Catholic missionary come. And the gospel by that stage, remember Patrick brought it here about 432. 600, the first Catholic missionary. Patrick came here 432, thereabouts. Do you know what all the churches across Ireland, when they practice Passover, and all across Britain, and all across Gaul, France, 20th of Nissan, because they got all of their teaching and influence from Asia. The Catholics coming in had rejected that from 325. If anyone tries to tell you the church in Ireland was Catholic, why did they not follow Nicaea? Why did they reject it? You know, when the Catholics first arrived in Ireland, they were trying to convert the Irish church and say, you're following Jewish ways. We rejected that at Nicaea. Why do you keep Passover or Easter on the 20th of Nissan? All the missionaries, all the preachers, all the leaders raised up under Patrick, they kept the Jewish teaching on Passover. You may think that's a very small issue, but it's major. It's absolutely major. And so I'm beginning to teach you that this replacement theology was taught by the Catholic Church. There was another man called John Christodom. He wrote a book. He died about the year 407. He wrote a book called Seven Sermons Against the Jews. He accused the Jews of deicide, killing God. He was a great preacher in Constantinople. He was a tremendously gifted man. He was outstanding. If I read all the things he wrote against the Jews, you'd be utterly shocked. Here's just a taste. It is because you killed Christ. It is because you shed the precious blood that there is now no restoration for you, the Jews. No mercy anymore and no defense. You have committed the ultimate transgression. This is why you are being punished worse than, than in the past. If this were not the case, God would not have turned his back on you so completely. 
He goes on to say this, the synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debuchis and the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assemblies of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling iniquity, a refuge of devils, a gulf and abyss of perdition. And for the Jewish people themselves, Christendom, um, he, he went on to comment and say, I would say the same thing about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews for the very same reason. This is one of the most gifted men of his generation. He was a Catholic. Much that he preached was spot on. It was absolutely correct. But he hated the Jew. He hated the synagogues. You know what some of his congregation, why he preached these sermons was because members of his church were keeping Passover on the 20th of Nisan and being influenced. They go to the Jews and say, tell us your customs about keeping Passover. What were your traditions and meaning? And so he got so irate, he preached all these sermons, hating the Jew. You, you ought not to hate these men. You ought to be loving them. The Bishop of Ambrose, who was very famous, he taught similarly. Gregory of Nyssa. And then there's Augustine of Hippo. He was the man. Although he was quite pro-Jewish, he did begin to say, talk about Jewish fables. He said, those that believe in a literal millennium, thousand-year reign on the earth by Christ, he said, it's a Jewish fable. So he would tell all the good Catholics, if you believe Jesus is coming back to reign from Jerusalem, literally, physically, visibly, you believe Jewish fables, made-up stories, myths. He blamed the Jews. Everything was a Jew. But really, Augustine, surprisingly, was very good towards the Jews, but not towards Christians who wouldn't become Catholic. He said, use a sword to force them into the Catholic Church. He, he, he raised up despicable teachings. Number five, its impact on church history. And I'll finish with this. Got so much to say. We're almost out of time. Its impact on church history. You can see I've shown you from the second century through, and I've only touched on it. It starts, little comments. We are Israel. Christ is Israel. We are spiritual Israel. It then becomes a systemized teaching in the Catholic Church. It gets put into the teaching of Constantine. And then Catholicism for over a thousand years embodies this teaching. We have replaced Israel. There's no more prophecies for Israel. All the promises are ours. Nothing else is special about Israel. In fact, we ought to hate the Jew. We ought to reject the Jew. We ought to force them to convert. Fifthly and finally, its impact on church history. What happened over the next thousand years? The Catholic Church got raised up. The Orthodox Church that ruled right across Russia. And then when the Protestant churches come forth in the Reformation, even they were affected by this. But see the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. Catholics began accusing Jews of blood ritual, of murder. Jews, the Jews were trying to take over the world. 
This led in the Middle Ages by Catholics all through Europe. This led to widespread persecution, physical persecution of Jews, including forcing them to be converted, expulsion to other nations, throwing them out of their homes, and pogroms of attacking them or killing them. Let me just give you one more, uh, one example, and I could give you hundreds tonight. King Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain, they're very famous, founded a new phase of the Inquisition in order to bring about religious conformity and unity within Spain in their day, to newly unite the nation of Spain under Catholicism. Pope Sixtus IV authorized this new phase in the year 1478 with a special focus on the Jews. Persecution was not new to the Jews. Since the year 1235, Jews by the Catholic Church, by popes, by emperors and Catholic kings, listen to what they forced them to do from the year 1235. They were made to wear a yellow circular patch of identification by the Catholic Church throughout Europe. But with this new inquisition, the whole Jewish population in Spain was given the choice to leave Spain or to convert to Catholicism. Those who chose to stay but not convert were faced with persecution, prison, and death. And believe me, you wouldn't want to be a victim of the Inquisition. You would not. Within months, more than 200,000 Jews left Spain within months, in one year. And this isn't even touching on the persecution, the Catholic persecution of the Jew. What did it come out of? Replacement theology. We replaced them. They killed Jesus. They have lost their place in this. Nothing is special about them. Did you know that the yellow star or the yellow symbol for over 600 years in Europe was given by the Catholic Church to the Jews to identify them for persecution and rejection? Who do you think created the ghettos? Not Nazi, uh, Hitler or Germany. Not at all. It was this same Catholic regime under replacement theology. They were forced to listen to sermons, forced Baptism, forced conversions. There was kidnappings of children for hundreds of years. Let me give you just one modern incident. The kidnapping of Edgarda Mortara. There's a book by this title written by David Kurtzer. He's a brilliant author, one of the best authors on Catholicism today. Amazing. He wrote this book, this story, Spielberg said he's going to make a movie out of it. He hasn't yet. All about this little boy that was kidnapped from his parents by the Catholic Church under official doctrine. The six-year-old Jewish boy living in Italy, this happened in the year 1858. It was a rich Jewish family. And they hired a maid to look after their six-year-old boy, cook clean in the house. She was a Catholic, but they paid her well. One day when she was out with this six-year-old boy, she's scared. She's listening Catholic sermons. 
Do you know what she does? In the street, she steps down, scoops up water from a puddle, and baptizes him as a Catholic. She then confessed to her priest what she had done. The next, the Inquisition. Did you know that in the year 1858, the Inquisition still in operation? It certainly was. The, it was reported to the Inquisition, the Office of the Inquisition. They send their soldiers in. They take the six-year-old boy, and his mother is never going to see him again until he's grown up. Do you know what? They trained him to become a Catholic priest because they said, no Jew can raise a Catholic child. If a child is baptized, no matter what his thinking is or practice, he can never, it's against the law to go back to practice being a Jew. I hope Spielberg makes this movie. What a movie it would be. I could keep going here, but let me finish with this. This will shock you. This will surprise you coming into the church. Martin Luther, in the year 1517, nailed his thesis to his church door in Wittenberg in Germany, and it started the Reformation. Within 30 years, all of Europe has been shook by the preaching of God's grace, faith in Christ. You must be born again. Two-thirds of Europe within 30 years swang away from Catholicism. 30 years, all as a result mostly of this. It was dynamic. Martin Luther, a Catholic priest, had seen the light. You must be born again. It was faith in Christ alone, receiving his perfect righteousness. It was a radical move of God. But there's more to the story that you don't know. I'm not sure any of you sitting here know this. But I can't finish tonight without telling you. I'm talking about the consequence of this teaching. He actually believed after this for many years that God was going to cleanse the Catholic Church. And then once the Catholic Church was cleansed from its corruption, the Jews would then convert to become Christians and the branches would be grafted back in. He was very evangelistic towards Jews. He was very hopeful he believed that there would be conversion. He wrote and spoke against any forced conversion about Jews. He spoke about that their conversion had to be the work of God alone by grace within their heart and their will being enlivened to choose Christ. He had a, a deep concern about the Jews in Europe. He wrote against the old Catholic theological writings that promoted hatred of Israel, hatred of the Jews. He, he said, that's anathema to me. He said, it's wrong. He mocked the old Catholic teachings that promoted persecution of the Jews. He promoted kindness towards Jews. But that's not the end of the story. Sadly, there was a dramatic change in the year 1536. Remember 1517? He nails his thesis. 1536, almost 20 years later, he turned, he changed to a point of hostility and hatred of the Jews. He then began to write, if you help Jews, you are doomed to hell. In 1543, he wrote a document, 65,000 words long, and this is what it was called, On the Jews and Their Lies. He advocated burning synagogues and schools. And he said, you should do this to honor the Lord. 
He promoted the idea of destroying their houses and their books. This was reprinted three times over the next three years. This was the last three years of Luther's life. Many people have tried to defend him, saying he was sick, he was old, he was cantankerous, he was worn out with all of his fights. This is a very different Luther than where he began, when he shook all of Europe and Germany with the gospel, with multitudes turning towards Christ. Here is an old man, in the last three years of his life, this book with hatred burned synagogues, drive out the Jew, burn their books, burn their houses, take their possessions. The last three years of his life, this, this got republished three times. Several months later, he wrote a booklet, another booklet, equating them with the devil. He preached a sermon just before his death, and he called it a final warning against the Jews. He said they ought to convert or be expelled. He actually, within that, he talks about Jewish doctors. He said, I believe Jewish doctors in Germany and Switzerland in treating you, they actually have the skill to give you drugs and medication that will kill you. And really, these Jewish doctors are killing Christians in Europe. They even have the ability to provide drugs to you that won't kill you for 20 years, but really, it's them killing you. So, this old preacher died hating the Jew. Can you imagine the consequence of this? Some people have tried to blame him for Hitler, but you can't do that. Hitler wasn't influenced by Luther. But I'll tell you what, remember... In Nazi Germany, in 1938, I told you about Kristallnacht, the night where Nazis rose up and burnt a thousand synagogues in Germany. Do you know that that was done on Luther's birthday? The next day, Lutheran ministers come out and said, this is in honor of Luther for this to happen. Now, Hitler only mentions Luther once, only once in Mein Kampf never mentions his anti-Semitism. He only mentions him a few times in 1923 in speeches. Luther is not the cause for Hitler's anti-Semitism. But oh, how dangerous that this thinking was in the German mind that a great leader like Luther would actually stoop to say, we ought to hate the Jew. We ought to burn their buildings down. We ought to drive them out if they don't convert. Many of those in the Reformation arose, thank God, the Puritans, other reformers, men of God, the Covenanters, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Samuel Rutherford, and Robert Murray McShane, many others arose to preach, God has a plan for the Jew to save them, and they'll be restored at the end. But now we've got a teaching in the church. Replacement theology has a dark history. 1,000 years, the Catholic Church persecuted and killed, even in the Crusades. On their way to Jerusalem to fight the Muslims, they slaughtered Jews in entire communities. This teaching has been used. We are the spiritual Israel. We have replaced national Israel. God is finished with the Jew. They are under God's judgment for crucifying Christ. This teaching is still in the church. That's why when we put up the first messages, I started to get hit by people saying, 
hitting me with all these things and you're a false teacher. We've loved your teaching until now. But oh boy, you're really off the deep end. You're going into deep heresy here. You know what? That's the influence of replacement theology. And now known heretics today like N.T. Wright teaches replacement theology. Let me finish with just one scripture here as we close. We're going to go in last week, next week, and I'm going to deal with the scriptures, what they teach in our day and our generation. See, with internet in Palestine, anti-Semitism under the guise of replacement theology, or what, what, do they, um, what do they call it? Fulfillment theology. Well, we're not replacement. We don't believe that. We're fulfillment theology. Everything's been fulfilled. It's a play with words. Next week, we're going to deal with their arguments. You've got to understand this because it's spreading widely on the internet. It's spreading in the church. This teaching that God has finished with Israel, that they have no right to the land, that this isn't Israel anymore. We're Israel. Close in verse 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14. Paul writing again, of these things to Timothy, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Don't get into stupid word arguments. I believe there's a place for debate and discussion, but don't get into arguments that are going to subvert, turn upside down those that are listening. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Study the Word of God. Study the Bible. A workman, he's speaking to a preacher, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. When he says to Timothy, rightly divide the Word, it means cut a straight line. That's what dividing the Word of God. He's not saying dividing it. He's saying when you deal with Scripture, teachings in the Bible, cut a straight line. In other words, he's saying, when you deal with individual scriptures and teachings, do it with precision, accuracy, carefulness, like a surgeon with a knife. Do it accurately. Separate certain verses and apply them correctly. Be very careful. And so he says, rightly divide the word of truth. Don't get into all those disputes. Be very careful what you do. Study the Word of God. And when you teach it and preach it, do it accurately, carefully, precisely, so that your hearers can be healthy and sound in Jesus Christ. There are consequences for being perverted in certain teachings. If you get the wrong teaching in Israel, you'll begin to say they've got no right to that physical line, land in Israel. They're wrong. I assure you, if you believe the wrong thing from Scripture, you'll start to believe the wrong thing. Then you'll say there's no prophecies to be fulfilled. There'll be no conversion of Israel. You don't know where you end up when you begin to spiritualize these things instead of taking them literally. We'll go further next week. But this message, I want you to hear, the genesis are the roots of replacement theology. Father, we love you. We bless you. We commit this message into your hands. Father, if any 
should hear online who have got caught up in this or confused by it. Father, I pray, bring clarity, bring truth to them, bring them back to the written scriptures, bring them back to the teaching of Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Father, bring them back to the reality of God. Lord God, we, we, we know, oh God, that Jew and Gentile must be born again, must be washed in the blood. It avails them nothing to be Jew or Gentile, to be circumcised or uncircumcised. They must have regeneration a new heart and be in the new covenant of grace through the blood. They must repent of their sins. They must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. But oh God, we, we want to be so conscious that your plan for Israel has not been finished. We, we don't want to twist the word of God. We don't want to have the wrong interpretation of the prophecies and the promises of the word of God. And Lord God, help us in these messages, Lord God, to walk in truth, to understand the word of God. God, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.